All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Blial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open, 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to uh, steal just one verse from chapter 7 as well, because I can. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who speaks, and you speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. Help us this morning, Father, to concentrate, to take to heart what you'd have us learn from your word, that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. As we've been going through 2 Corinthians here at church, in our growth groups, perhaps in your personal Bible reading time, uh, you might have noticed that the turns of phrase that Paul uses makes for a, a number of quotable quotes from this part of God's word. Uh, Jono scored one of his favourites last week, for Christ's love compels us, for uh, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Or from earlier on in um, uh, chapter 1, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Yeah. Later on, chapter 12, some people might have this as a favourite, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There we go. But brothers and sisters, I wouldn't be surprised if the most quoted saying 
from 2 Corinthians is do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, in some older translations, you might have, might have uh, remembered it like this, it's um, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a bit of a standout command from today's uh, uh, chapter, but it's also one that, as far as I can tell, is often and easily misunderstood. What does it mean to not be yoked together with unbelievers? Well, a yoke, of course, is a thing you'd use to keep your oxen together, so they keep playing the field in the same direction. They can't sort of split apart. Uh, so some people uh, have thought that, well, the locking metaphor is, that's used means wedlock, means marriage. Don't get married to an unbeliever, assuming you have a choice in who you can marry. Well, the Bible certainly does teach that it's a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, but I'm not convinced that that's what Paul means here in 2 Corinthians 6. Some people rightly point out that the oxen are yoked in order to work. So perhaps the teaching is that Christians aren't to work alongside and with non-Christians. But if that's the case, then it's pretty strange that Jesus himself envisages Christians working with non-Christians. Uh, he says, on the, the day the Son of Man is revealed, for example, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Another approach has been uh, one that we can see throughout church history, where there have been Christians who assume that to not be yoked together with unbelievers means having absolutely nothing to do with people outside the kingdom, including nothing to do with secular government, even. So cloisters, monasteries, closed Christian communities and cults have all arisen at various times throughout church history. But something the Apostle Paul himself says to the Corinthian church in an earlier correspondence shows that that can't possibly be the way to understand his command. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, referring to another letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers, swindlers idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. I'm not saying to do that, says Paul. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, slander, drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So yes, there are people we must not associate with, but clearly that can't mean removing ourselves entirely from the world. So what does it mean to not be yoked together with unbelievers? And how do we apply and obey that oft-quoted part, uh, saying from this part of God's word? Well, naturally, and I'm sure you'd assume this, the first thing we're going to do is look at the whole section together. We start in verse 1, where we get the general context. Paul writes, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For, he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you, I tell you now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. The broad context is about not receiving God's grace in vain. The time of God's favour and forgiveness is now. So you want to make the most of what he's doing now, otherwise you're receiving the grace in vain. If you've received God's grace, that is, if you are someone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, which I certainly hope you all do, 
Well, therefore, you want to see others come to do the same thing. You want to see the word spread effectively. You don't want to keep it to yourself. You want to see effective gospel ministry taking place because now is the time of God's favour. Many of us will remember, sadly, the Port Arthur Massacre. Remember the Port Arthur Massacre? Yeah. Where Martin Bryant uh, went on this random killing spree and shot 35 people for no reason other than his own madness. In response, the then Howard government declared a national amnesty, a period whereby any person in possession of any illegal firearms or weapons could hand them into the police and there will be no charges, no questions asked. As a matter of fact, part of it was a buyback scheme. Some people would have gotten money. Alarmingly, there was a lot more illegal weapons handed in than than the Australians or the government might have uh, imagined. But once the amnesty period was over, the penalty will then be firm and without leniency. Well, so it is currently with God. Jesus has died to pay for all sin and he's holding off on returning for the final judgment such that the day of salvation is now. Now is the time of God's favour where anyone can can turn in repentance and faith and find forgiveness before it's too late. So for we who are saved, for we who have received God's grace, we don't want to receive that amazing grace in vain. We want to do all we can to see others find forgiveness during God's great amnesty. That's why Paul is telling these Corinthians what makes for a credible ministry rather than an ineffective one. So his very next words, verse 3, you can see his thought now, verse 3, we, almost therefore, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, or, or as you could also translate it, we wholly commend ourselves. And then he gives this long list, which you all heard read out, of all the things that make apparently for a credible Ministry, the hardships, the beatings, the hunger, the sleepless nights, etc. All good gospel ministry is hard because we follow the suffering servant and we take up our cross. The millionaire in the megachurch, the celebrity prosperity preacher, they look about as far away from the suffering servant they supposedly follow as you can get. And they seem to keep falling into scandal, hence discrediting the gospel. And when you consider 2 Corinthians as a whole, you come to realise that that's actually one of the top issues that Paul is sorting out in this letter. And it's an issue that provides some important context for understanding the command to not be yoked with unbelievers. You see, a little bit later on in this letter, 2 Corinthians, later on, we'll learn that After Paul had established the church in Corinth and then moved on to keep doing his his, his mission work, that not surprisingly, some others came in, some false teachers came along. It's the very thing Paul had warned about, not to mention Jesus and basically every writer in the New Testament. But of course, the false teacher always wears a convincing disguise, and in this case, it was the disguise of worldly wealth and success. And the Corinthians, sadly, were thoroughly sucked in by all of it. Listen to what Paul says about this from later on in the letter. I'm reading from chapter 11. I'll put it on the screen. Paul writes, I am jealous for you, Corinthians, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid, 
just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? See, friends, when you start to piece it all together, you work out that there are these false teachers called super apostles who fit in very nicely with the worldly cultural standards of their day. In Greek culture, which the Romans had adopted, the esteemed philosophers would demand payment for their eloquent orations. They were trained in what we might call the classics, but of their time. And when you Christianise that kind of thing, you get persuasive so-called gospel preachers who show themselves to be credible, how? Not on account of how they live, but on how highly they come recommended by others and by how much they get paid by their hearers. You can imagine one of them in the Corinthian church talking to some people about the Apostle Paul. Paul, that guy's an amateur. He doesn't even get paid for his teaching. See what happened to him in Macedonia? He got so rejected, he was so offensive that people booted him out of their cities. Look, I know he meant well, but you guys need to level up. You don't want to preach it with bruises on his face. You want a successful rich guy with a magazine kind of a face. He's obviously the one whose ministry is successful. But of course, if that's the kind of messenger you are, then the message you present can't possibly be the one about the one who did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a slave of all. Hence, Paul would fearlessly and earnestly declare that, again from 2 Corinthians 11, I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And I did not put it on the screen, did I? I got that wrong, didn't I? 2 Corinthians eleven twelve following. Friends, these super apostles who thrive on expressions of worldly power rather than heavenly weakness, the agents of Satan who pretend to be apostles but who look so unlike Jesus that they can't possibly be known by him. They are leading the Corinthians astray with a different Jesus and a different gospel. Now that we see that sort of big picture of what's going on, as we come back to today's passage, we can start to understand why Paul is worried and why he's pleading with the Corinthians, strange as it sounds, to be loyal to him. Verse 11, 
We have spoken freely, literally freely, free of charge, to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Basically, he's saying, embrace me and my offsiders as the bearers of the true apostolic gospel. And thankfully, we'll learn in the next chapter, chapter 7, that the Corinthians do still indeed embrace Paul. When Paul's co-worker Titus went to visit the Corinthian church and then came back to give a report, uh, he said that the Corinthians still have a deep longing for Paul, they have a deep sorrow at his previous rebuke, and a great concern for his well-being. That's uh, chapter 7, verse 7. But they can't have it both ways. They can't embrace the true apostolic gospel of the suffering Messiah through his chosen apostle Paul and yet also remained infatuated with the worldly prosperity super-apostles. To put it another way, they will need to stop being yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, it's the age-old problem of tolerance. True tolerance is very much a good thing, and it's something that originates with Christians. In Islam, you enforce attacks on the infidels. Uh, in Rwanda, if you're a Tutsi, you kill the Hutus, etc. But in God's kingdom, we pray for all men, and we pray that our secular government will enable us to live peaceful and quiet lives uh, among our neighbours of all stripes and shades. But just as there is a limit to God's tolerance, so there must also be a limit to ours. And false teaching, and even more, false teachers are not to be tolerated by the household of the true and living God. Hence we come to Paul's big teaching point from verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? For what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, another quote, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know Paul's bringing out the big guns when he starts getting a whole lot of Old Testament quotes to make his point. It has always been the case that if God graciously dwells among you, that it's thankless, misguided and sinful to corrupt his saving presence by introducing false gods and therefore in this context, false teachers. Our God, rightly, is a jealous God. And the reason Paul can refer to his own character and conduct as a testimony that he's on the side of truth, unlike the super apostles, is because it's always the case that the character of the messenger tells you something about the character of the message. Uh, we all know this instinctively. Uh, when the surgeon, for example, walks out of the operating theatre, 
slumps his shoulders, looks to the ground, hand like this, screws up his face. You already know the kind of message that he's going to bring, don't you? Similarly, when the Apostle Paul endures beatings and hardships and sleepless nights and looks like a wreck yet somehow keeps going because he's like the Energizer bunny, you know, he just keeps going. It's patently obvious that the message he thoroughly believes and preaches is one whereby such difficult things can be considered light and momentary troubles that are preparing people for an eternal glory. You know that he's taking up his cross to follow the suffering servant who then entered his glory. He's not taking up his expensive suit to follow the influencer who would build his empire on, uh, on earth. And so the immediate application for the command to not be yoked with unbelievers is to stop tolerating false teachers in the household of God. Guys, I've got to say on the national front, our denomination probably isn't doing too well in this area. Outside of Sydney, Armadale, and to a lesser extent the Bathurst and Canberra-Golban Diocese, it's hard to find Anglican churches led by Bible-believing clergy. Now, recently at our National Synod, a motion was put forward that the Synod affirmed that according to the Bible, Marriage is something that happens between a man and a woman, a male and a female. The majority of the laity voted in favour. The majority of the clergy voted in favour. But the majority of bishops would not affirm that according to the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's our national synod, the Anglican Church. Now, thanks to God... In our neck of the woods, we've got a solid theological college. It's more than just a Bible college. It's a theological college. That's what more is. It teaches its students to think biblically and to teach the scriptures. It is pretty hard for an Anglican clergyman to become a celebrity preacher and even harder for them to make loads of money because we've got all these measures in place that when you just get a cap. But there are always serious threats uh, you've probably noticed, if you've been here for a while, uh, that our, for example, our selection of congregational songs, uh, our music, is something in which we're careful not to choose songs produced by organisations that promote and propagate false teaching, lest we end up advertising and funding false teachers at the very point we're engaged in a ministry of the word. Sadly, though, that is not the case for a great number of Anglican churches, even here in Sydney. But in saying yes to Paul and the apostolic gospel, the Corinthian church had to ensure they would not yoke themselves with the unbelieving super-apostles. And that shouldn't take any of us by surprise because all over the Bible it's constantly impressed upon us that if you're not saying yes, sorry, you are not saying yes to the truth unless you're also saying no to the lie. You're not saying yes to the truth unless you are also saying no to the lie. But whilst that's the immediate application, Paul being Paul can't help but to move these Corinthians toward a broader application as well. So in the very next verse, 
given that God lives among his church, the obvious thing is not only to stop tolerating false teachers, but also to stop tolerating anything that arouses our holy God toward jealousy. So, chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's in line with that Old Testament quote from Isaiah 52 that he gave us in verse 17, Come out from them and be separate. The basic idea is that Whilst there are all sorts of things that you and I should love and enjoy about God's world, all sorts of things we ought to enjoy and receive with thanksgiving, that there must yet always be a discernible degree of distance between the Christian and the culture, between the children of God and the children of the devil, between the redeemed and the reprobate, between the clean and the contaminated. The joy of knowing our Heavenly Father who is jealous for his children is our joy. And it's precisely our joy because, well, the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, Galatians 6. Our God is not a rule-making killjoy who wants us all to continually do penance as we jump through painful hoops. He's a loving Father who is jealous for the affection of the children he redeemed at the cost of his own son's blood so if you know that the group of people you're going to go out with next week are likely to drink to excess and you also know within yourself that you happen to be someone who can easily fall into the temptation to join in then why on earth are you even thinking of going you'll feel dirty you're contaminating god's temple his life-giving spirit dwells within you and amongst us and and you'll contaminate it with with idolatry and debauchery that that, the drunkenness brings if you know that that movie or that tv show is one that normalizes celebrates and glorifies sexual immorality adultery fornication and you know that you're the kind of person that very easily gets sucked into that narrative and makes you want to think along the same lines then why on earth are you even considering watching it the broader application of not being yoked together with unbelievers can be summed up as you're not saying yes to jesus unless you're also saying no to ungodliness you're not saying yes to jesus unless you also say no to ungodliness and by the way it's in this vein that there is a certain rightness to invoking the don't be yoked together with unbelievers command as a reason not to date or marry a non-Christian. Now that's not the primary application but it's certainly one of the broader applications of this part of God's word. You should feel irked at the thought of taking part of the temple of God and uniting it with something that dwells in the dominion of darkness. Finally, remembering that Paul also taught that we're not at all to remove ourselves from the world but to live in peace with our neighbours, we need to practice the art of holding some degree of distance from our fallen world, but without being aloof, without the so-called holier-than-thou attitude. 
Of course, that's difficult because God does literally dwell within and amongst his saved people. In reality, you actually are holier than thou. So that's kind of awkward, right? But of course, none of that is to our credit. It's solely by the grace of God who gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He makes us holy. Looking back at those last few verses, it's precisely because we have the wonderful promises of God that he will live and walk among us, that he will be a father to us and that we're his children through our undeserved adoption. The great motivator to stop tolerating false teachers and to strive for godliness over worldliness is not that we need to win the favour of our jealous heavenly father, but by the compelling love he has given us through Christ. Uh, To sum up my greedy third part, third main point for today thankfully God has already said yes to us in Christ that's the thing that drives you to not therefore be yoked together with unbelievers don't be yoked together with unbelievers why because it will hinder gospel ministry in this day of salvation and even more so because God in his great kindness has called us out of the world and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins and in whom we're being prepared for an eternal glory. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your teaching uh, that you're a loving God who's rightly jealous for your children who you walk among. Father, may uh, we with joy and delight and thankfulness embrace that jealousy and therefore be separate from the kind of things that contaminate your temple, from false teachers and false teaching, and for anything really that threatens to compromise our holiness. May we do this not to win your favour, but precisely because we already have your wonderful promises that you will be our Father and that we are your children. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.